welcome to another Dishcast. In this beautiful spring in Washington, D.C., we have the blossoms peeking out the window. And it's a crisp, lovely, sunny day. And I am delighted to have on this show this week is someone who's written a, a really amazing book, which I have nearly finished. I'll be honest with you, I haven't managed to finish all of it. But I've read a lot of it. She is an award-winning journalist at the BBC. Currently an investigations producer at Newsnight, the BBC's flagship program for news and current affairs. Kind of a great show. I always used to watch it when I lived there. And, and I've occasionally gone on it since. Before joining Newsnight in 2016, she spent eight years in BBC radio, producing and reporting documentaries and other long-form programs. She just published her first book. That's what we're going to talk about today. It's called Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock, Tavistock Center's gender service for children. We're going to talk about the emerging debate about how to treat and, and care for children with gender dysphoria and, and many other things, including journalism. I just want to let you know that we have a bunch of great guests coming up. We have John Ward. He's going to be talking about his experience as an evangelical, watching his own religious faith become an ugly political party. Michael Lind, the, the really wonderfully heterodox liberal writer, Mark Lilla, and John Oberg, the vegan, who is persuading me to give up all meat. Well, he hasn't actually persuaded me, but he's, he, he, he's trying, and I'm trying a few various things to eat to see if I can actually pull it off. But today, Hannah, we are here, and as all my readers know and listeners know, there's been a, a really extraordinary debate emerging over the last few years in America and in the, the UK and indeed across Europe of how to actually handle boys and girls from young ages all the way through to their teens who are conflicted about which sex they are, identifying with a gender that's different than their actual biological sex, and how we can best help them deal with what is often a very challenging diagnosis and a challenging human experience. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us and for, and for writing this book, which is probably the most thorough journalistic account I've yet read of the introduction of these new treatments for children, how they played out in the 2000s and 2010s and now, and what we've learned and what we haven't learned and how we go from here. Hannah, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me, because I always ask this, where did you grow up in England, presumably? And, and how did you find yourself being a journalist? I grew up in southwest London suburbs. It was middle class upbringing, really. I was born Which suburb? Twickenham. So... Twickenham. Yeah, with the rugby ground. Yes. I had a very, yeah, I had a nice childhood. I went to my local comprehensive school and then local comprehensive high school. And then I, I, I was one of those rare children that actually loved school. I really liked learning. I was really happy at school. I played loads of sport. I did well at school, but managed to get away with little teasing, although I did well in my exams. And then for the end of high school, we all had to leave at the age of 16. So 
I went to a, a private sixth form. Then I went to Oxford to read the degree for the indecisive philosophy, politics and economics. And and really That's a that by <laughs> listeners, that's a legendary degree at Oxford. It's called PPE. And every wannabe politician does it. And quite a few hacks. It's almost a requirement uh, if you want to be prime minister of this country. So by those is, standards, I'm is. a real failure. But although who did Boris didn't do PPE, did he? He didn't. He did classics. Right? Yeah, exactly. He did the great. He did great. Anyway, which college were you at? Just to, I was at St. Edmund course. Hall, Teddy Hall. Okay, just around the corner from me. I, w- I went to Magdalen a few years before you did so 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 you were swat basically yeah quite happy swat. i was a happy swat happy swat that got to oxford it was a big deal good for you and teddy hall's a great little college just around the corner from where i went and and why journalism is that just came out of the ppe no you know honestly i it was not something i know so many journalists have wanted to be journalists since they were children and they edited their student papers i didn't do any of that embarrassingly I actually courted going into management consultancy for a long time as most other PPEs do and when that didn't happen um, I was fine with it and I thought what am I going to do so I went to work after I graduated I I then thought actually I'd, I'd do really fancy journalism so I went and worked for the Richmond and Twickenham Times for just for work experience and I got a show on local hospital radio same hospital where I had been born. And I got a job as working for a political news agency, and it was a subscription model. And we wrote parliamentary analysis, essentially. So we would go and watch what we call select committees. You call them select committees over there, I think, don't you, as well? Committees. We'd go and watch the hearings. We'd write, we'd get the official record from Parliament that day from Hansard, and we'd write sort of 500 to 1,000 words of analysis from an eight-hour debate on some piece of legislation. And it was really interesting, but that's when I thought, no, that's not really what I want to do. I want to do sort of my own stories, but properly newsy stuff. And I went and did a postgraduate qualification in broadcast journalism in London. Then I went to, and after I'd finished that, did a few years in commercial radio, which is how, I mean, it's all commercial out there really, isn't it? But so here, well, no, we have, <laughs> we have, have NPR, have, of course. Trans- <laughs> we have NPR and, 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 but there's a lot of commercial, but what kind of commercial radio did you do? Was it, was it, was it news? Yeah, news, news. So always news. And so my first proper job, I was down in Sussex, not actually East Grinstead. You're, you're, I know you weren't born what? there, but yeah, I did cover East Grinstead. Absolutely. That was my patch. Ruby Grinners. What were you doing in, in, in my neck of the woods? So I was based in Crawley, the station. Oh, right. lovely. Yeah, not not, not glamorous. <laughs> and I was the breakfast newsreader, so I had to get up at some ungodly hour of the morning. Oh. And I was also sort of the reporter for, for the local station. And East Grinstead was one of those towns where we overlapped. There was another station based down in Brighton, and it was kind of, oh, that and Haywards Heath, who covers it? So I did... Very modern. Yeah, I did go to Scientology a couple of times, though, and that was interesting. And while I was there, there were some quite big stories. So I, I'm, I'd only just, so I was sort of in my early 20s, early to mid-20s, and managed to interview the Prime Minister at the time, Gordon Brown. It was, it was a foot-and-mouth outbreak, so the farming community wow. was in sort of dire right. straits. We also had a, 
the plot to blow up transatlantic planes and some of those bombers will play so, so, some of the the people behind that had actually grown up in Crawley so, yeah. so it was a really interesting time and just doing some local digging I had sort of won an award for scoop of the year for the kind of commercial network and then I went to work in Birmingham for another station again news and then in 2008 I joined the BBC in what was then called Radio Current Affairs which is kind of long form radio basically yeah, yeah. is that connected to Radio 4 the sort of yeah the, it's the, it's mainly the, Radio the, 4 we did but it, we make programs for Five Live and World Service as well but the the most of the output goes on on Radio 4 What's the BBC like? People over here have a have a rather rosy view of it in some ways. It's a big, giant corporation, right? Basically, a bureaucracy, huge. Yeah, it's massive. Not for profit. Not for profit. No, exactly. Somehow. Yeah, it kind of is, though, at the same time. They, there's a commercial they, they arm, yeah. I mean, there's a commercial arm, and that all gets ploughed back into helping us make programmes. But it's a real... I mean, it's changed a lot in those 15 years. It's much mm -hmm. leaner and... You know, I think it. You know, it does less. I think than it than it used to. You know, I think it has. It is the most respected news service in the United States, but I think that's just because of the accent. <laughs> you you learn you you learn over time as a Brit in America that they will believe anything you say as long as you say it in, with the correct vowels, and eventually you begin to realize this is a total scam, and you either do the uh, the sort of Tina Brown, Christopher Hitchens kind of mode and just play it up. And go for it, or you act like the self-loathing Brit that I probably am deep down under and kind of... Well, I also came earlier, so my accent kind of disappeared. But anyway, we're digressing. <laughs> How did this topic come up? How did you first come across the possibility of covering this, this, this new treatment for children with gender dysphoria? When was the first time you, you've heard about it? I first came across it around 2017. I was, I was off on maternity leave with my eldest child, so I had a bit more time than usual. And there really wasn't very much being written at that time here, but there was a little bit in the newspapers. And I remember reading a couple of pieces, and there was also a documentary on BBC television about what had been going on in Canada with a gender clinic there for kids and a gentleman called Ken Zucker. And his clinic had been forced to shut down because some in the trans community basically thought that he was practising conversion therapy by trying to change some of these children's identities back to their birth sex rather than, than, than identifying as trans. And I thought it was fascinating and not really any more than that. That was my first sort of when I first came across it. And I went back to work in 2018 and it was sort of rumbling around, but still really not that that much coverage here. This was the, this, we're talking about Zuck, but this is the piece, this is the story that Jesse Single wrote about in The Atlantic. Is I that, believe so. So ago? yeah, it was a Toronto uh, clinic. I, read, I remember yeah, I read was, Jesse's piece. The doctor was was an advocate for what was then called watchful waiting. watchful waiting, and which is that you, if a child comes to you with uh, with a, a, a different gender identity than their biological sex, you listen, you 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 then explore a variety of of contexts in which this might make sense. You look at the kid's history, 
you look at the family dynamics, you look at other possible influences, and then you you wait and you, you watch the child develop and mature and see what happens. And if if they become ever more secure that they really are one sex and not the other, then you can think about at some point some medical yeah. intervention. Yeah, and they did they did provide was, medical interventions. Yeah. Oh yes. But it was a it was the fact that he did not agree with this new idea that in fact as soon as a child tells you your your role is to affirm that and never to actually cast any doubt upon it. And that was enough for him to be to lose his career. Yeah. Yeah. And then subsequently he, he was awarded a, a payout for for being wrongfully treated. But what was fascinating to you about it? You used that word fascinating. Well everything about it, both I mean, I was a new mum, so I had children for the first time, mm. which just totally changes your outlook on everything. Really? Yeah, I mean, unexpectedly. I mean, you can't anticipate it, but I think it does. And in what way? Just to to, to keep you on that thought for a second. Oh, just everything. I mean, I I think, I think. Well, I, I think you feel. I mean, at the risk of sounding soppy, you, you you never experience love like it. I mean, I love my partner, Mm. but and I love my family, but it's. It's a love that you would mm. both kill for and die for. Mm. And there's also mm. has that fear wrapped in it that you can't imagine something happening to them. That would be just mm. beyond awful. Um, mm. And also I'd had quite a sort of awful birth. And so there was all kind of feelings wrapped up with that. And oh. I don't know, it was just, I, it just changes your life. I mean, you're, you, you're, you, there's always someone more important than you from that moment onwards. And, I think you become. And that made you curious about children in general and <laughs> children. Not overly, but it just, it just, you know, I, I, I could really. There were just so many different emotions in it that, that that I could suddenly identify. You know, the worst thing in the world is seeing your children in distress because you would do anything to take away their pain, and, you know, wherever anybody stands in this debate, not that it's a debate, but but. Where anybody stands on what might be the best way to help and care for this group of young people, no one denies that the distress that they're feeling is absolutely real and, and awful for them and, and their family. Mm-hmm. So I think I, you know, I could, in some senses, sort of, you know, had huge sympathy for the for the parents. Obviously, it's, it's terrible that the, the kids were distressed. It was just, it was very interesting that watching the pathways and the different experiences of these families that in some cases you'd have very similar starting points and there would be very different endpoints so some for some of those 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 children their gender related distress would resolve and they'd be perfectly happy and for others it wouldn't and and they went on to live as happy trans adults so it was it was just really interesting and i thought mm. the but no yeah just as a, you know as a journal I think one of the reasons I love being a journalist is that I'm a naturally nosy person. And I thought it was just fascinating. It was just. I, yeah, uh, it's, it's why I think why I am one too. I'm just, I just, I'm curious. And especially because you're right, that the, the diversity of cases here is quite remarkable. Although of the kids we're talking about, the ones who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria, we call gender dysphoria, 
although that term has changed over yeah. the years too yeah. in various ways. But basically, we know roughly what we're talking about. The majority of them are same-sex attracted. Is that is that true? That is what the very limited data we have tends to show. Yes, and that's yeah. that's kind of the clearest that that one can be. I mean the the original basis for affirmative or medicalizing this in 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 young people comes from the dutch and in their famous study of of 70 young people every single one of the females was not heterosexual so they were so either same sex attracted or bisexual and all, all but one of of the boys was similarly which is let's which is quite striking it is striking. and then here in the uk the data again incredibly limited from from the gender identity development service so they had some data from 2012 there the, the the young people referred in that year and they they'd looked at all of them and of the ones of that year that they have data for so the older ones 12 and up around 90 percent of the girls were same-sex attracted or bisexual and around 80% of, of the boys, which is incredibly high when you compare that to population level. The general population. Yeah. It's probably, and it, it came down maybe. a bit. They had some data from 2015, although we don't really know. the num- We have no idea what the numbers are. It's just on their website. But this is one of the problems. There are no really very good data, but it came down to about let's, 70 let's... and 60, but still high. It is, it is a simple fact, it seems to me, that the data we have any of this is extremely limited. I mean, I think most people can agree that we just don't have really good long-term studies. We don't. And in fact, as you found out with, with the gender identity development services in the United Kingdom, they never even kept any records. Well, they, they so did keep you, you, They did keep We records. don't have, we don't have, in your book, and maybe I misread this, but we don't have a comprehensive list of people, kids who were treated there and were followed up with afterwards so that we can actually make some kind of judgment as to the long-term effects of and, and benefits or, or otherwise of, of this treatment. Yeah, so it, it's really baffling because this clinic's been running, it's the second oldest gender clinic for youth gender clinic in the world. It's been running since 1989, more than 30 years. And there are no follow-up data. So we don't know how any of the young people have have fared, really. Both those for whom, you know, they went on puberty blockers and then potentially hormones and then left, and for those who didn't. And and those data are equally important. You know, what what happened to the people who, you know, was their gender-related distress? Did it resolve? How? Why? What are they doing now? Did it not? You know, what's what's happened? So we don't have any follow-up data. The the odd thing is that the the clinic did have a dedicated or designated research team. And what surprised so many of the clinicians that I spoke to was that despite that, it would seem that the data that was being collected wasn't particularly meaningful because JIDs have been unable to give us the overall number referred for physical interventions. They can't break it down by sex, by age. We don't know how many young people who have an autism diagnosis have have been referred for puberty blockers. None of this information, you know, they couldn't provide it to, to 
the High Court here in England when, when they were asked to. And there doesn't appear to be, in the certainly in the public domain, any ongoing audit of the demographics of those young people. So, so 20 years ago, there was a, a full audit of the young people who'd been through the service and it, it, it collected data on associated difficulties that they might have, family circumstances, all these kinds of things. And it was with the view going forward that, you know, the more you know about your patient group, and I use that very loosely, not to pathologise, but your service users, the more you know about them, the more you can cater care towards them and, and improve it and, and meet their needs. And and seemingly that that didn't happen going forward. But they were collecting data. We just don't really know what it was. And And some clinicians say to me, look, it is all there in the patient notes. You just have to go and, not me, but, you know, one has to just go and get it. And that that is probably going to happen now with this independent review that's taking place of gender identity services for young people. When did the first experiment of this kind happen in which you had children presenting with gender dysphoria and the decision was made, you know, actually what we can do, the title of your book is called Time to Think, is that we can offer them these drugs that we had previously given to children who had very precocious puberty, who started going to puberty way too soon, also use varieties of these drugs for other causes later in life. But we could use this to pause their puberty so that the idea was that you would give them time. This is what we're told constantly. Give them a little space and time to think through who they were and to to come to some conclusion. When was that first study done? So it started off as a, a study of one. And this was in the Netherlands. And there was a paper, an academic paper published in 1998, which described the very first instance of this. And the person was known as B in this paper. And it was a female to, to male trans person. And B was now in their early 20s by this point, and what had happened is at the age of 13, B's puberty had been blocked by a private endocrinologist, and she had been incredibly distressed about with their identity, and then she'd made her way to, to the, the gender identity clinic in, in Amsterdam, which was the very first one, and joined a group session with others talking about it, and at that point, the Dutch were also sort of slightly further ahead than anyone else and that gender-affirming hormones or cross-sex hormones, whatever we want to call them, could be administered from, from 16. And actually B waited until they were 18 before taking testosterone and then went on to have surgery, had something called a metoidioplasty, which is the construction of a micropenis from from the clitoris, which which grows because of the testosterone. And this paper was published in 1998, and this was the first the world had ever heard of. Well, it was the first first time those drugs were used for blocking puberty for, to treat gender-related distress. And then... So that's just, just, just mm-hmm. to underline this, 25 years. We, mm-hmm. We're talking about a quarter century. We're talking about a, a, a pretty Well, it was slightly term. longer because, yeah, because she was... He, sorry, was early 20s by then, so it had been about seven or eight years before that. So, yeah, 1990-ish-ish. Okay, okay. Yes. 30 years ago. Yeah. Since it first started. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this person's experience was then, people thought in, in, in Holland, that 
maybe we could try this for more kids and see what happens. And there was a, an original group that did this. Well, in, around the year 2000, they, they devised a pathway based on the experience of this one person, B, who they said was very positive at this point, their gender dysphoria had resolved and, and they were happy, although you know, it was very, very early days. And actually, they weren't very, they weren't actually that happy with the genital surgery at that point. But based on this one example, and, and what they had seen previously from from administering hormones at a, a in earlier, but sort of late adolescence, they, they, they said that for a very small group of people, this this could be the right pathway. So this became known as the Dutch protocol. And importantly, it, you had to meet quite stringent at that time criteria so the young person had to have had lifelong gender incongruence or 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 gender dysphoria from childhood that had persisted and was consistent and had worsened with the onset of puberty you had to be 12 at that point you had to be psychologically stable which was really important you couldn't have any other major associated difficulty and the young person also had to have a really supportive living environment and providing a young person met those criteria they could take the blocker at age 12 followed by hormones at 16 so either testosterone or estrogen and then surgery at 18 and sort of by 2006 there were there were some data from that which purported to be very positive i mean importantly even at that early stage none none had come off the blocker so the time to think rationale while it made absolutely perfect sense because it does you know a young person is really distressed their body's developing in a way that they don't want it to they don't identify with their natal sex so what do you do you pause that development therefore the distress goes that that does actually make perfect sense but yeah, it also also makes sense for the parents they're given instead of told you have to make some drastic yeah. decision now the parents are, set, are told well this is just a, a this buys time and of course they want to buy time exactly because they don't know what they're doing hmm. and so you have this perfectly strikes me as a completely persuasive commonsensical idea maybe we just give it give this kid some time to to breathe to, to think it through and then decide if 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 with with doctors and parents if that's the right thing to yeah. do. Yeah. But interestingly and and the endocrinologist that sort of led the way on this here said you know accepted when I spoke to him that that was only ever a hypothesis though really the time to think. It was right. It hadn't been tested. There was no proof and you know and and it has been sort of questioned now really whether they do indeed provide time to think i'm sure we'll come on to that but and the reason they the reason why people question whether now it actually is time to think is because we have almost no cases that we can find in which people are put on puberty blockers and then decide oh we're going to stop that now i've resolved my gender dysphoria i'm going to carry on in what my biological sex was before i had this period they almost universally then proceed to cross sex hormones which is what that b what happened to be so this so some have but very very few yeah very few right it's it's something like 98 percent mm-hmm. or something very high so this person went through all of her adolescence till 18 with no puberty at all so she so she, well, she was blocked at, she was blocked at 13 and then was testo- testosterone at 18 and 
then had had genital surgery and and has identified as male ever since. And and actually, the New York Times had a follow up last last year, I think, in twenty twenty two, because there was a another paper twenty eleven which provided an update. And although that was uh, touted as being really positive, in fact, he still identified as male and didn't regret any of the surgery and and passed and his gender dysphoria had gone but in fact he 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 was rather ashamed of his his, his genitals and he he couldn't have a, a long-term intimate relationship so it depends how one measures the success of an intervention but but subsequently as i say that the new york times did speak to him last year and he he's now very happy and in this stable romantic relationship so that's oh, good that's, great that's good yeah yeah i mean that is what we want right we want to have the best result for everybody it just depends on the individual involved and whether it's the right framework for it so this then becomes a new kind of model even though the time to think thing is just a hypothesis hasn't really been shown even though it's just one person and then a small group even though that group is quite stringently selected so as to avoid any other mental health or background or issues that could be muddying the waters as it were and yet that then becomes sort of the standard of care essentially how did that happen what what would lead doctors medical professionals and maybe we can talk now about the british example because what's interesting about the british example is we do have because we have a socialized system we have a very centralized place we have we have actual access to data we have reports there have been a, several reports on this place and whereas in the united states it's such a extraordinarily amorphous unsent decentralized private sector primarily no central organizing body federally except for sort of the the the, the surgeon group the wpath and and other groups so that so the, the interesting thing about Britain is that we have a little case study here in which we can actually see stuff we might not mm. be able to see. So, so this becomes the standard of care for the gender identity development service in the national health. Eventually. So what happens is the Dutch are doing this in the 2000s and pressure mm -hmm. grows on the gender identity development service to do the same here in the UK. And... That pressure comes from all quarters. It comes from the young people and their families themselves. It comes from patient groups. It comes from other clinicians, both those practicing this this field, sort of the Dutch. It comes from those working in adult gender clinics who say, look, we deal with adults who haven't had their puberty blocked. And we, we see the difficulties that that can bring about for, for trans adults. And it also came from endocrinologists. And there was this real feeling that here potentially was a medical intervention that could really help a very vulnerable and very distressed group of young people. And they were very small in number. And it looked as though th this could be an intervention. And the argument was, well, what, why would you withhold it? So what they set out to do was the right thing. They said, okay, look, we ha we've had these concerns for a long time. We've, we've got concerns about how blocking puberty impacts your bones because we know that that's when your bones get strong. 
We know that adolescence generally is a time of great fluidity. We don't want to stop something happening that that might have. We are a bit worried about what blocking puberty can do to your brain, which is a really vital time. But we hear you, but the data are really poor, as in there's not much of it, but we accept that it's looking quite positive. So what we're going to do is we're going to do our own research study to see if we can add to that evidence base and get some more data to show that actually, yes, this is beneficial to a select group of young people. So that's what they set out to do. And there are criticisms of the design of that study and that there was no control group whatsoever. I mean, obviously, you couldn't have a blinded trial. You'll know if your puberty's blocked or not. But there were other methods that were suggested to them, but, but they didn't do it, and nor have any of the studies in this whole field. So they set out to do this. And then Remarkably, having set out to get more data to show whether indeed this was the right thing to do for a selected group of young people who were very distressed, without getting that data back, they then rolled out the early blocking of puberty as policy anyway. So from they set they started the study in 2011. They enrolled 44 young people between 12 and 15 onto that study. But in 2014, within a month of the last participant even starting, they just rolled it out as policy across the service with 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 some very important changes as well. So the age, the lower age limit of 12 was done away with altogether. And they moved to what they call a stage rather than age approach. And this meant that as provided a young person had actually started puberty, that they were in the very early stages, something called Tanner stage two, they could potentially be eligible. And anybody could take part and, and not be part of a research study. And really that's, it was it was very striking, having set out to do the right thing and then not wait for your data. Um, right, and but also did they have the same criteria is the Dutch, which is that they had to make sure these children had no other possible factors affecting them, family issues. Well, this is the other thing that majorly changed. So during the study, the criteria were largely the same as the Dutch, although some clinicians say it was a little bit grey in practice, but, but they were largely the same. But what happened then was that, as we've seen in gender clinics across the Western world, not only did the absolute numbers being referred increase rapidly, but there was a dramatic shift in the demographics of the young people being referred as well. So there was a shift from natal boys, largely. There have always been girls, but but largely it was a higher proportion of boys. We saw this, this shift to a majority of, of girls who didn't have lifelong gender dysphoria or gender incongruence, but actually their their gender difficulties had started after the onset of puberty in adolescence, and many of whom were contending with quite serious associated difficulties, things like depression, anxiety, eating disorders. They'd had quite traumatic backgrounds, many of them. And so directly not meeting the criteria of the Dutch study, which at that point, and really still is, the only major evidence for this intervention. But JIDS openly put those people onto puberty blockers as well or referred them on. And 
the director of the service and 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 one of her leadership team were open about this in parliament in 2015 they said we have extended the early blocking of puberty for those for whom there isn't a robust evidence base because we think it it can be a benefit to people if 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 we carefully extend it and really when that's when people started to worry because they're saying the evidence base was limited anyway and we're now applying it to a completely different cohort of people who clearly have because a lot of other things going on as well because children aged three or four that suddenly start identifying each other's sex continue to do that through their childhood then have extreme anxiety around puberty is one group of kids. Then there's another group who have been fuzzy, you know, fine or whatever, just not had an issue at all. Start and they're overwhelmingly girls now, not boys. And they hit puberty, and that's when the gender dysphoria starts to arise in a in a very now. And in some uh, cases, we'll go through the number. Let's go through the numbers because it was up within ten years. We went from some crazy thousand percent increase, but it it is roughly about like nine or ten to start with, right? That's the very earliest, and then it goes up to several thousand. Yeah, I mean, in the first uh, in the first sort of decade, I mean, really, you could count on two hands how many were referred, and then we get to around. We get to 2009 and 97 are referred. So still relatively small, bearing in mind that's a national gender clinic. There was no other one. And then from 2009, we saw this increase of 50% per annum. So about 150 the year later, 225, you know, roughly 50% until we get to 2015 and it doubles. And you got 1,450-ish referrals that year. And... So we, we we go from the the tens to the thousands in in the space of five six years. So we we have only one study for a small number of people within certain criteria. You have another study started that hasn't really been concluded. That in fact is only beginning to get it through. And yet they don't wait; they decide to open this up. Now the argument would be right. Let's just, let's just think this through. And this is the argument that that we're told now. If you don't, they'll die. Th- this is the the argument is that, that that teenagers or people, kids going through puberty who are insistent in their one sex and the other, if they do not get the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones, they are much more likely to commit suicide than if they are. Now, what evidence, solid, actual data do we have about that, that could that we could we could apply and have some security of knowing that 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 what's going on. Well, thankfully, here in England, at least the data do not bear that out. Thankfully, and right. to their credit, JIDs have always been very very careful about the suicide narrative, and they have rejected it and. For many, many years, I believe it's probably still there on their website, they said, you know, it is very rare. And their senior clinicians have been in conferences and on the record saying it's really unhelpful to talk about it because, A, we don't we don't see it, thankfully. And B, what message does that send young people that this is so bad for you to contend with that 
that you might end up taking your own life. It's a terrible message. And and actually, they made the point, and again, to their credit, that actually young people are pretty robust. And to to imply that without one course of action, they wouldn't be able to cope with life, they said is really unhelpful. Now, there are data from JIDS which show that some young people have taken their own lives or, or, or have attempted to. And of course, any death of a young person in those circumstances is, is, is one too many and it's, it's awful. But this idea that with, without that particular treatment, there will be a host of suicides, thankfully, does not appear to be borne out by the data. Well, you would also think just inferentially that if we had engaged in this new program, it would have reduced the number of suicides dramatically. And yet we don't have any data on that either, right? I mean, it, it's, but what's striking to me is the other thing is that the, the message being sent out by this, by main mainstream groups, violates very basic messaging about suicide. Yeah, it does. You don't, you, you, you just don't scaremonger kids into saying, if they don't do this, they'll commit suicide. And it, it, it's just something that, that, you know, actually responsible organizations I and mean, if you talk to any suicide group, they would say, no, you do not. You do not suddenly tell people they're going to kill themselves if they don't get some. It is an incredibly dangerous. But it is. And that is what that is. That is what so many parents in the U.S. are told. They're told, well, do you want a live girl or a dead boy? I mean, literally, those are the kind of phrases that I use. Yeah. And we hear that from the White House. You know, from the the Democratic Party, from the major EQIA plus groups, that if you restrict this, you are killing children. And now we just don't have the evidence to support that argument. Not here in the UK, and I have to say, I'm not across the data in the same way in the states. But I would imagine it's not there either. I mean, certainly everything I've read from from people in the states. Why would they? Why would they bring it up? What, what is going I, through their heads? Why do they, is it because it's a sort of complete no brain? It's the one thing that will, that no parent, it's the one thing, it strikes me that when you're given a treatment and said, you either take this or you're dead. It's a, you, know, you can imagine a whole bunch of treat, medical treatments in which that might be the case. But it's sure as hell likely to turn you towards doing the treatment rather than otherwise. Yeah, I mean, like we said and earlier. And you're right, these are children. These are your own child. You're told your own child yeah, and like we said earlier, there's nothing worse than seeing your child in distress. So, so it's an it's an awful situation for parents to be in. And I think what's important to acknowledge is that there there are consequences to not acting. And I'm not saying that that is a young person right. taking their own lives, but 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 you know, I've spoken to trans adults, and many trans adults would say, "Look, I really wish I had been able to block puberty because it would have made my life much easier." But equally, and I think that that argument is valid, but there is an equally valid argument that there are many adults who are not trans, who were gender nonconforming and gender distressed as children who say, thank God I didn't have puberty blockers because I may have gone down a path that wouldn't have been right for me either. So I think it's really quite complicated. I'll give you a very personal example. I, I wasn't, didn't have much gender dysphoria. I was not, I was gender non-conforming to some extent as much as i hated rugby i hated team sports i liked being home reading i was a bit girly in some ways and so as i was about to hit puberty and thinking about the hi there world of men and- this is not the end 
of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>